Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to be sprout to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord bless to us the reading of his holy word and to his name be glory and praise. The Molnar children do not like Bob Dylan. I'm sure some of you don't blame them. 
In Dylan's defense, I would plead for him to be judged not as a singer, but as a poet. Recent decades haven't had much use for poets, so he put his work to music. And the singing is rough. But the poetry? Take everything as broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. He describes the world you see pretty well, doesn't he? It's the world Isaiah described in chapter 59 where hands are defiled and lips speak lies, feet run to evil, justice is far off, and our sins testify against us. What is that if not everything is broken? In one of my commentaries, the author talked about how much as a teenager he loved the Beach Boys and Junior Walker and the All-Stars but how he later felt like he outgrew them. They worked before he had seen too much of life, but eventually there just isn't enough of that happiness to last. In the end, he found himself agreeing with Dylan, everything is broken. But he adds, that's why we need a savior. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. The Savior speaks first because he is the only one who can fix what we've broken. Isaiah is anointed, yes. But Jesus applies this scripture to himself when he preached in the Nazarene synagogue. It's he who fulfills the prophecy of this ministry of spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. Preaching the word of God in the spirit is a most important thing in the life of the church and the believer. It's the means that God has appointed for the spread of his salvation and our continued enjoyment of it. And how does that good news come down from the triune God to our broken world through the proclamation under the anointing of the Spirit. How are they to hear if no one preaches? As an aside, let this encourage you who sit under the preaching of the word each Sunday. No man who stands in any pulpit is like Jesus in true holiness or moral purity. You all know me, and you know me rightly, as a sinner in need of a Savior. That's true of every man who preaches, and it was even true of Isaiah. And on one level, that can make it harder to hear what the preacher has to say. But remember, the authority to preach comes from the Spirit of the Lord confirmed through Christ's church and his elders. And so when I or any other man so ordained stands in a pulpit and preaches the good news, I do so by the same spirit and with the same power and authority as is working in Jesus Christ himself. 
In fact, because this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ, weak and broken vessels like me can nonetheless proclaim his good news in truth and with power. And what's the nature of that news? It's incredible. It's incredible. It's good news to the poor. It's news that will bind up the brokenhearted. It proclaims liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's news that is objectively, unmistakably good. During the height of the pandemic, some of you may have seen John Krasinski's YouTube show, Some Good News. For a while, at least, it was a viral hit because in the darkness of 2020, it focused exclusively on good news. And I'll tell you that it worked in our house. We would tune in and we'd be encouraged and it would rekindle some hope that that media and the world and life is not as bad as it seems. And God says here, that's what preaching should do in a more significant way. Our world is dark. Our hearts deeply wounded. Our consciences cry out against the evil that we permit and perform. That's why we need what one of the reformers called not an empty sound, but powerful medicine. In Hebrew, verses 2 through 4 are all one long sentence. It calls attention to the power of the Spirit's anointing and the effect of this news on God's people. And then verse 2 begins to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's evoking the year of Jubilee. Only this time, it will be spiritual. God commanded Israel to let the land rest every seventh year. That's the sabbatical year. And additionally, after every seven of those cycles, 49 years, they were to celebrate the next year as the year of Jubilee. And what that entailed was remarkable. All debts were canceled. Land that had been sold for need was returned to its original owner. Indentured servants were released from their obligations and freed. One scholar summarizes, everybody got a fresh new beginning. Don't you know people who, maybe you are someone, is looking for exactly that? fresh, new beginning. It's almost too amazing to believe in. But here's the thing. For God, the year of Jubilee wasn't good enough. It could cancel your financial debts, but it could not release you from the wages of your sin. It was a cause for earthly joy, but it could never heal the truly brokenhearted. It could offer you a fresh start with your work and with your land, but it could not give you a fresh start with all the things that matter most. The gospel is greater news because it's the greater jubilee. 
It does bind up broken hearts. It does comfort all who mourn. The freedom it provides can never be taken away, never forfeited. In the darkness of the pandemic, some good news gave us something to sing other than everything is broken. In the darkest nights of our souls, a good word from a friend can bring some momentary relief. In trying times, laughter, even silliness, is powerful medicine. So we know something of what it's like to be relieved from darkness by just a little bit of light. The gospel is no little bit of light. Verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. You see, for all who believe in the gospel, the power of this God-anointed and spirit-empowered news cannot be overstated. He's not offering a moment of reprieve from everything is broken. He's offering a new song for you to sing. This writer draws out the contrast well. He says, our emotions tell us that God is against us, that we've exhausted all our possibilities, that life is a waste. So why not just settle into mediocrity and make the best of it? That's why we live in an age of despair. And into our age, Jesus says, I came to bear that guilty despair far away and to replace it with joy inexpressible and to fill it with glory. And, and Christians, perhaps, perhaps you hear that and you think, sure, I just can't do it. You're right. You can't. He can. He does it. He has the spirit. He has the word. He has all he needs to remake this whole world beginning with you and me. But then look at verse four. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. God isn't simply rebuilding it. He's rebuilding us into rebuilders. He's rebuilding us into ones who can rebuild what we've broken. He makes us partners with him in this mission of good news. He'll not do his will without us. He will make us usable for his good purposes. If you feel unworthy, if you feel inadequate to the task before you, if you feel like you've already been a failure with what you've been given, this is good news for you. Christ thinks it's more beautiful this way. Isaiah gets it. He thinks so too. Verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's the similes that bring the picture to life. Like 
a bride and a groom putting on their best to celebrate a new life beginning together and delighting in one another. Like the sprouts of a garden, appearing weak and even dead off season, but sprouting to life when the time is right. So God will make us alive and ready for joy. So God will share with us his mission of rebuilding. We follow Christ in this. Remember, it was only a few chapters ago. He was the man of sorrows. And now he rejoices, clothed with garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness. Do you find yourself holding back? I do. Perhaps you've accepted Christ's salvation, but you're just too scared to allow this hope in. Self-awareness, which is a great thing, may be to blame for this. Because when we see ourselves rightly, it gets worse. We see more sin, more failure, more hypocrisy, more pride. We see the things we've ruined. And in that context, God's offer to involve us in the rebuilding of them seems too good to be true. Seems like something else we would just mess up. But hear me out, because this is an important part of God's good news. He sees the ruins, and he knows who ruined it. But look again at verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. Who are they? Who are they of verse 4 that do the rebuilding? It's the mourners of verse 3. The short-term fulfillment of the prophecy was the people of Judah participating in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple after the exile. But the long-term fulfillment of this prophecy is you and is me. God will restore what has been ruined. He will restore us. And those will go together. He will restore us in order to use us to restore what has been ruined. You look around the world and you see hard things and you see dark things. Some that were caused by the sin of others and some that were caused by your own sin. And you see darkness. And what God says is not just that he will restore it. But he will restore you. And he will share with you his mission to restore it. That's why Jesus does not respond to our need the way we fear he would. What we can imagine easiest is God being frustrated with us. You ruined it again. We could imagine God being burdened with our need. How many times must I forgive? We can imagine God using finite patience with us. And he's God. He has a lot of it. But we can imagine it running out. And yet when God looks at our brokenness, 
What he sees is not our failure, but what he will redeem us to make out of that failure. The ashes and mourning give way to the heroic and joyful mission. You know well the song of ashes. Everything is broken. He's offering a new song for us to sing. In chapter 62, he gives us the lyrics. Another teacher writes, here is the meaning of human history. God intends to prove through Christ how much he can love and bless ruined human beings. God will not hold his peace. He will announce that if you are in Christ, he delights in you. The recreation he will do is significant. It's so significant that we will need a new name as a result. Verse 2, you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. For, verse 4, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land no more termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. Think about the names that you have for yourself. The narrative that goes through your mind, what you call yourself when no one else is listening. Don't those names always come from your past? Forsaken, desolate, everything is broken. God has renamed us according to our future. He gives us new identities and expects that to change our experience of reality. Kids, you know what it feels like to put on a piece of clothing that changes the way you feel. Maybe it's a tie or a dress that makes you feel more grown up. Maybe it's a uniform that makes you feel like you belong and that you are capable. The names that God gives us can have the same effect. Yes, we were desolate. We felt it deep within us. But he says now that we're the bride of Christ, do we feel that? He chose us to be his own. He's drawn near to us in an unbreakable covenant. He protects us and does what is always For our good. Yes, we were forsaken and we felt it deep within us. But he renames us Hepzibah, if you've ever wondered what that word means. Hepzibah, my delight is in her. Man, I don't recommend that as a nickname for your brides. I don't think it sounds quite as good. Your Savior's delight is in you. Do you feel that? He knows how broken you were, how broken you think you are. He knows about the things we've destroyed, the devastations that we've caused, and he delights in us because he's rebuilding us into exactly what he made us to be. And this should give us a new song to sing. What song is playing in the soundtrack to your life? 
that little internal movie that we all have of the lives that we're living, what's the soundtrack? Is it Dylan? Or is it Isaiah? A better preacher than I told his congregation, as we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian and we who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution. Here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart People characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. Our song needs to be a song of joy. The song of brokenness suits our world, but a song of joy better fits what our Savior is doing with it. In the year of Jubilee, the people had an obligation to proclaim the good news of God's freedom all year long. Jesus brought greater freedom and better news. The angel said before his arrival, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Aren't we living in a greater Jubilee? God brought joy into our world of darkness. He offers joy now into our lives of darkness. But properly understood, verse 1's for Zion's sake should be the soundtrack of our lives. It should be the rallying cry of our lives. The transformational work God has done and is doing through his church it warrants our highest allegiance and it should provoke our greatest joy. The song has changed. I'm not saying that's easy. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He told them and his partners in ministry. He said that they are workers with you for your joy. They were ready to work for joy. Are you? Are you ready to devote yourself fully to the preaching of God's word so that by that good news you can be changed and equipped to share it with others? Are you ready to tell the world about what God has done, the mess you've made and what he's made from it and of you? Are you ready to pray? The end of this passage has the illustration about the watchman of the walls of God's city. It's, it's, it's this very challenging illustration because we know that the church isn't going to provide one beam of light in this world of darkness apart from persistence in, in prayer. And yet God, God tells him in this language to, to wear him out with our prayers. Or at least to try, because you can't. To exhaust him with our approaches to the throne of grace. You know, we've been at a music festival this weekend. And 
uh, it's a lot of fun. And you know, we love music, but after a little while, you know what one of your favorite parts of the music festival can be? Some silence. Because there just isn't much silence. And yet God says to bring our cacophony. Never be silent with him in prayer. We need, we need not to rest in our preaching and praying and rejoicing until he's finished the work that he's promised us that he'll do. We can't rest on our laurels. I know the old song. I know it well. It's a song of darkness and shame and guilt and hopelessness. And I know that you know it too. So hear me. In Christ, that is not your song anymore. He's given you a new song. He's rebuilding it all, and he's rebuilding us to make us rebuilders of what he'll rebuild. All that's been broken, he will rebuild. Now, it's not easy to sing. It's not even easy to believe. But I'd suggest that when you're struggling to believe it, Take a moment to check and see which song is playing in your heart. Hear the Lord's new song for us. Believe and praise his goodness for us. And for Zion's sake, do not keep silent. Help each other. Let's sing his song together. Let's lift one another up as he has lifted us up in him. We have a new song. Let's sing it together now and forevermore. Amen.